Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cody's Car Conundrum. I'm your host, Cody Wagner. No duh, right? Here we discuss everything from car news, culture, movies, stories, games, interviews, events, and so much more. Without further delay, on with the show. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's Sunday special. Today, I've got a slightly different story for you. Uh, I was just going through all, uh, yeah, all par. I kept saying all par, but there's two L's, so all par. And I found a really interesting story, actually, about how Walter P. Chrysler actually bought Dodge from the Dodge, well, not quite from the Dodge Brothers, but for the sake of simplicity, bought the Dodge car company from the brothers themselves. And the title of the article is The Fly Buys the Mammoth. So I didn't really know that Dodge, the automaker at that time, way back in the early 20th century, was bigger than Chrysler. But that's why I thought it was such an interesting story, among a few other reasons. So, headline is The Fly Buys the Mammoth, Chrysler and Dodge Brothers. Let's get into it. The article, once again, comes from Allpar and was written by Mike Seeley. History does not tell us about Walter P. Chrysler's abilities as a poker player, but his approach to Dodge Brothers suggests he may, he may well have been quite good. The Rise of the Dodge Brothers Dodge Brothers had started as a machine shop. They made engines for the first mass-produced Oldsmobiles and did most of the assembly of the earliest Fords under contract before building the cars bearing their own names in 1914. Well, that's not something you hear very often, that they had made engines for the first mass-produced Oldsmobiles. I wonder if that means they were doing that first before they started working at Ford, or I guess it would be roughly around the same time, because at the very least, the Ford Model... Well, the Ford Model T... Okay, the Model T is not accredited as being the first mass-produced car, I don't think, but it is credited as being the first affordable mass-produced car, for sure. So maybe they did start doing the Oldsmobile stuff first, well, at least their engines. Anyway, that's not, that's not exactly neither here nor there right now. Dodge's first dealer, Cumberland Motors of Nashville, Tennessee, remained in business until the late 1960s, proudly advertising their status as world's first Dodge dealer. Wow, in Tennessee, I guess, it, I guess that does kind of make sense with it being on the East Coast, because most of the population, well, except for a lot later, but a lot of the population either lives on the East Coast, especially back then, or, you know, West Coast with all the gold mining. <laughs> There was no shortage of applicants, though, to sell Dodge Brothers cars. Dodge Brothers did not have a truck line for some time. Their first was a purpose-built ambulance for U.S. forces in World War I, which became a factory-built pickup in 1918. Both brothers died in 1920, John in January and Horace in December. The Dodge Widows promoted Frederick, Frederick J. Haynes to run the company, and he proved to be a good choice. Just one year later, Dodge Brothers entered a joint venture to produce Graham Brothers trucks using Dodge Bros mechanicals, selling them at Dodge Bros dealers. There's a little sidebar here. John Bittens, hopefully got that name right, editor of the Dodge Brothers Club News, wrote that Fred Frederick Hayes learned state-of-the-art casting and mold-making at Cornell University and went from Franklin to Dodge Brothers in the machine shop era, bringing Franklin engineer Russell Huff over when they started on the car. Now we have after the Dodge Brothers. In 1925, the widow sold the company to investment bankers Dylan Reed and Co. for $146 million, an astronomical sum in that era. A new Ford sold for less than $300. In 2015, that would roughly be $2 billion. Dylan, Dylan and Reed likely bought Dodge Brothers to sell it. But Dodge Brothers not only continued to run at a profit afterwards, but bought Graham, yeah, Graham Brothers in 1926. The Grahams went on to buy Page Detroit, renaming it. Graham Page, and then selling it to Kaiser, to Kaiser Frazier. The purchase allowed all truck manufacturing to be consolidated under the Dodge Brothers' name. Ah, uh, okay. 
After building parts for other manufacturers, Dodge became a colossus, especially as most automakers bought a much higher percentage of components from outside suppliers. Dodge had an enormous plant, enormous, enormous plant complex in Hamtrak, Michigan, known as Dodge, Maine, until it was torn down in 1980, with its own foundry, hospital, and even its own telephone exchange. That is, that's almost crazier than the story of of Ford having a spy plane and using it to spy on Dodge back in the seven, uh, I think it was the late 60s when they were making the the winged warriors, the Mopar winged warriors, that being the Dodge Charger Daytona and then the Plymouth Superbird. That might be, that might just be crazier than that story. Dylan and Reed had a pretty good idea of what it had and had no intention of letting it go cheaply. That is when Walter Chrysler enters the picture. Chrysler Corporation, still not much larger, still not much larger than Maxwell Motors, which it had essentially been, was a fly on the wall by, cor by comparison. Walter Chrysler needed Dodge's foundry and production capacity if he was ever going to come close to General Motors and Ford. Unlike GM, which acquired more than 30 different car, car truck, and tractor, yeah, and tractor manufacturers before settling down with the six core car divisions, or Ford, which seems to, which seems to have acquired Lincoln as much for Henry, Henry I to punish Henry, and Wilfred Leland as anything else, Chrysler needed Dodge, and Walter Chrysler never acquired any other existing makes. Indeed, he had killed Chalmers, Chalmers? Not long after his Chrysler car was launched, and the new Plymouth brand was essentially a continuation of the good Maxwell 4. He killed off the Maxwell name at the end of 1926. Walter Chrysler's scheme for getting Dodge was quite possibly his most audacious act since buying his first car, a locomobile, that he could hardly afford. Companion makes were in the news at the time, including Hudson's Essex, Willie's Overland's Whippet, Cadillac's LaSalle, or LaSalle perhaps, and Oakland's Pontiac, which outlived its parent by around seven decades? Oof! Buick had the lower price Marquette in the wings, and Oldsmobile was preparing the Viking, which was actually higher priced than its parent car. Most of the GM companions were aimed right at Dodge's segment at, of the market, which had, which had to have made Dylan Reed somewhat less than comfortable. Into this fray stepped Walter Chrysler with three new brands, though admittedly one simply replaced Maxwell. This was Plymouth, which was hardly in Dodge Brothers' turf. Dylan and Reed was likely far more unnerved by the other two introductions, a lightweight six-cylinder car, the DeSoto, which sold right below Dodge Brothers in price, and Fargo Trucks, aimed at the Dodge Brothers' truck line. In his excellent biography of Walter P. Chrysler, Vincent Cushiro, ho hopefully I got that name right, although I think I butchered the last name, wrote that DeSoto and Fargo were created mainly to intimidate Dylan Reed into selling Dodge Brothers, and it worked. They sold out in, 1920, in 1928 for $170 million, in 2015 dollars, $2.4 billion. Short of their asking price, but still at a large profit, not even counting the profits made by Dodge Brothers in their three years of ownership. Walter Chrysler bet the entire company on his ability to buy Dodge Brothers. In later years, he was quoted as saying, without Dodge, there would be no Plymouth car. Then there's a little image here that says, 1929 Dodge Brothers Merchants Express half-ton pickup. The first Dodge truck built by Chrysler, actually. That's very interesting. The company would not have been able to expand production as, as they later did without Dodge's capacity, not just to assemble cars, but to make parts. Not to mention the later sale of Plymouths by Dodge dealers though Plymouth, DeSoto, and Fargo production were all, were all well underway when the Dodge sale took place. It's unsettling to imagine how the two firms would have weathered the Depression had they remained separate, 
with Chrysler's multiple makes and low production capacity and Dodge Brothers' ownership by an, by an investment firm. Car companies boomed and went bust quickly in those days. Mr. Crusiro, again, I'm really sorry, wrote that Chrysler had intended to drop DeSoto and Fargo after getting Dodge. With Fargo, this wasn't difficult since the Fargo line was sold by Chrysler Plymouth dealers. DeSoto, on the other hand, was sold through a network of 3,000 sole brand dealers who would, have had, who would have had grounds for legal action had Chrysler dropped the make, and it was headed by Chrysler's son-in-law, Byron Foy. In any event, DeSoto took the first year sales record for a new make, lasted an amazing 32 years longer in the United States, and continues to this day in Turkey? DeSoto still sold in Turkey? What? I gotta find that. I gotta research that. What? That's so cool. And here, I thought they were completely dead. That's just crazy. But what's so interesting about stories like this, though, from like the turn of the century, well, turn of the 20th century, is how many automakers there were back in the day. And like, compare that with now. It's almost, I mean, apparently it was the case even then, but nowadays, it's almost impossible for a new car, for a new car brand to even get its footing. You know, we're talking about Walter P. Chrysler here, DeSoto, Fargo, Dodge. All, well, I say all, but a lot of GM, Oakland owning Pontiac. I don't even know who Oakland is. The You know, the Willys Jeep even. Compared to now, it seems like it was much easier for, for someone with ambition to make an automotive company if they had the guts. Partial, I suppose that's partially because, shall we say, dealer infrastructure and even mechanic infrastructure wasn't what it is now. So that wasn't as much of a drawback then as it is now, even though Dodge, once again, had a much bigger dealer network even back then. But it, it really is crazy to think how, how many more automakers there were back, back in, the, in the early to mid-20th century. Dodge, Fargo, Plymouth, DeSoto. Uh, did I say Fargo? I don't think I said Fargo already. Chrysler from you know the Maxwell, Plymouth, Oakland owning Pontiac, whoever the hell. Oakland was, Oldsmobile, Ford, and then owning Lincoln afterwards. Willys Overland, here you have Hudson. Cat, even Cadillac all the way back then. Buick, Oldsmobile preparing Viking. I've never heard of that brand. Buick with Marquette. Again, never heard of that. It's just, it's so interesting how many more domestic brands we had back in the early 20th century. And nowadays we have, generally, we, don't, we pretty much just have conglomerates. We have the big three, GM, Ford, and at the very least, North American side of Stellantis FCA. I mean, yeah, we still have Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, you know, the new edition Ram. And General Motors has Chevrolet, Buick, Cadillac, and GMC. GMC being, I would imagine, a relatively new edition. Ford has themselves and Lincoln, but it just wasn't what it is now. Or er, what it is now wasn't what it was back then. Even Especially when you look at the model ranges particularly of Chrysler, especially like that's sadly a shadow of its former self. Dodge has three very well-selling models, but back back even into the 60s and 70s, you had the Captive Import Colt, the Dart, the Coronet, the Charger, the Diplomat, the Challenger, the Monaco, the Polara. Like, do you see what I'm on about? It's, it's so interesting how different the automotive world is now, because at least when it, about five years ago, you couldn't, it was a, almost impossible task to break into the automotive industry just because of how much of a how much of a hold all the legacy automakers had and i don't know if i've said this in an earlier podcast but i've been thinking a lot about how a lot of these new electric car automakers are sprouting up out of nowhere and actually becoming successful tesla was the first one now we have faraday future they're not successful yet but things are looking better you have lucid 
and many other brands. And so what's interesting is that the electric, the boom of electric cars seems to have brought brought with it almost the resurgence of new automakers and the ability to have new successful automakers. Oh, I forgot. Lordstown. What is it? Lordstown. Lordstown, I think. And then who has the... Oh, Rivian. Right? Right? Rivian, especially. With the boom of electric cars has meant, interestingly, the resurgence of the ability to have a new brand in the automotive sphere. It's, It's brought back almost like the pioneering spirit for the more or less average, you know, every, I say everyday American, but in the automotive industry to have new brands to, to experiment and to fight and to fight the big guys. Cause we haven't, we haven't seen that in earnest. I don't think in a long time, even early Tesla was basically a joke up until the model S up until after Elon Musk came into the picture for that company. And so it's really interesting how we've almost had a rebirth in the automotive industry as far as shall we say, exper- to some extent, experimentation, but mostly mostly the emergence of new brands, the almost the infancy of the automotive industry. We have a, we've had a resurgence of infancy with, with the growth of electric cars. If you ever want to know, if, if you ever want to know why, or if your kids ever, or whoever ever says, you know, why is history important? Well, this is kind of why. It gives you that perspective. It gives you that better understanding of the world then, and to some extent, even the world now. It, looking to the past can give you insight for things in the present, and to some extent, even things going into the future. And that's that really is why it's important to read up on some of the read up on the let's say beginnings of an industry or beginnings of a product. It's just knowledge, plain and simple. And that I say that can't hurt anyone. That's not quite true, but knowledge is important for better. Whether whether it helps or harms, knowledge really is extremely important. Actually, let me clarify. Historical knowledge. Not that modern knowledge doesn't matter, but as it pertains to this current discussion, what I meant by that is historical knowledge. But in any case, what do you guys think of that story? Because that, that really surprised me. I thought, just as a baseless assumption, Chrysler was fairly big in the early 1920s. Not Not much smaller than Dodge. I didn't realize just how well Dodge was doing in the very early 20th century. That they were bigger than Chrysler. I mean, Walter P. Chrysler finessed, finessed the investment firm. Like, oh my God. <laughs> That's, what, what is it like those Savage savage Moves compilations or Savage Moments compilations you see on YouTube? That should be one of them. Like sav- top 10 most Savage Moments in history. That should absolutely be one of them. Like, man's had companies just to scare the investment firm into give into... Into giving the dodge into giving the dodge company to him. That's if that's not a flex, I don't know what is. Let me just reread that to make sure I have it right. Uh where is it? Yeah, Chrysler had intended to drop the Soto in Fargo after getting Dodge. That was just it was primarily to scare them. Oh my god. Yeah. Wrote that Vincent wrote that the Soto and Fargo were created mainly to intimidate Dylan and Reed into selling Dodge Brothers, and it worked. If that's not a flex, if that's not a 200 IQ move, I don't know what is. That's insane. But yeah, so this was, it was a bit of a short story, especially for a Sunday special, but well worth the read. What do you guys think of the story? Please let me know in the comments below. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this Sunday special. If you did, please make sure to like the episode, share the episode, and follow the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, comment, share, and consider subscribing. And if you do subscribe, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. 
please make sure you hit the little notification bell and then all notifications that we're notified every time I upload. If you want to listen to this podcast on the road, but you don't have one the Podby mobile app, hey, not a problem. Boot up wherever you get your podcast. Type in 30 Scholar Conundrum and then choose the episode you want to listen to. I will see you all next time. You've just listened to me probably ramble about some cars if I'm being honest. If you've enjoyed me passionately talking about lumps of metal on wheels, then why don't you follow me on Twitter at Cody Carr, C-O-N-U-N-D-R-M, or check out my website, www.codyscarconundrum.com, for articles and other car-related content. If you have any questions or would like to become a sponsor, send an email to drtaffy777 at gmail.com and put sponsor in the subject line. Make sure to follow me here or any other platform so you don't miss out on more full throttle content. Thanks for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode.